The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Andy, thank you for being here. I'm going to start by introducing people to who you are and <laughs> we've asked you to join this conversation. Uh, I realized that I have three of your four books, so I'm going to start oh, by That's them quite good. <laughs> we have uh, The TechWise Family, which is your newest book, and I would highly recommend people get this. I love, especially the size of it, too, that you can... Oh, yes. <laughs> Sit down and read this and be like, yes, now I'm ready to implement it. Um, so you give more time to the implementation of this because the reading doesn't take that long. <laughs> so. And then strong and weak, especially for those who are in education. We did this at John Brown University. We went through with our honors staff and also our honors student government board. And we walked through about what this means, which I thought was fantastic. And then culture making, which I've had since it came out in 2008 and I reread it again, I find it just as powerful and just as enlightening for our time now, if not more so, I think. So I would highly recommend people grab culture making and hopefully we'll get into some of what culture making has to do with liberal arts because I find it, um, I find it very informative for what it means to be a maker with these, these arts that we're mm. talking about. Uh, so for those of you who don't know Andy Crouch, uh, he is on the governing board, both at Fuller Theological Seminary, but also the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, which is one of, is the primary, primary funder of the Liberating Arts Project. So we are bringing Andy into conversation with us so we can really hear what his thoughts are about the state of liberal arts, especially in Christian higher education. So thank you, Andy. Thank you for the invitation. I'm thrilled to have this conversation. <laughs> well, so right now, you know, as your role in CCCU, what are you seeing in liberal arts across CCCU or across Christian higher ed? Where you have this, you know, you have this perspective that I think all of us need to hear from because you probably have a lay of the land, a greater understanding of what's going on more largely versus a lot of us are are kind of I don't want to say in the trenches. I don't want to make it a battle zone, but we are, you know, course, we're at the yeah. forefront of these conversations. Well, I see what I'm sure almost everyone who would um, want to uh, enter into this conversation sees, which is the liberal arts are under tremendous pressure um, that has an economic dimension, but I think much more deeply has a cultural dimension. And I think it's very important, at least I would want to put this in a much broader context than Christian higher ed. I think this is a, a uh, pressure across all of higher ed that actually I would say uh, non-Christian institutions are even more vulnerable and the liberal arts is even more vulnerable in non-Christian settings than Christian settings with the exception of, of a tiny group of institutions that basically have achieved escape velocity from economic pressures. <laughs> and my wife happens to teach at one of them, Swarthmore College, these well-endowed, often coastal uh, liberal arts colleges that sit atop a certain kind of pinnacle of status and so forth. And they'll, they'll survive whatever's coming, but 
but everyone else who's trying to offer a liberal arts education is under just terrible stress and uh and it's true in christian higher ed as well although i mean we can get into this i actually like my only remaining hope for the widespread engagement with the liberal arts is christian higher ed um i mean there will continue to be the swarthmores and the amherst and the williams and 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 a few a few students will get to experience that but for for students who for one reason or another don't access those institutions or who want to bring more of themselves and their faith commitment to their education then then those institutions make it easy to do i just think christian higher ed is going to be where it's at so pressure but also like the best opportunity we've got to keep this uh, durable tradition alive, I think. Yeah, so can I ask two follow-up questions about that? So one, uh, why, why do you think it is that higher ed, Christian higher ed is not any different than regular higher ed when it comes to the way they view liberal arts? Like, have they become, you know, just so much in their own culture that they don't understand that they have a different calling than the rest of the world? Or, I mean, wh why is it the same? In, in, in large part, you would want to be able to go to a Christian school and find it so distinctive from anything else you would get, you know, in the so-called secular realm. Why do they look the same right now? That's my first question. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, I, I, would want to, I would want to at least slightly push back on the idea that they look entirely the same. So if a school is going to be Christian, it, uh, at least in most traditions <laughs> that I can think of, um, you've at least got to engage with the Bible. And, and the moment you engage with the Bible, you're doing something analogous to what the liberal arts kind of require and train us to do. You're crossing cultures, you're stepping out of your own immediate space, at least if it's any kind of serious engagement with scripture, if it's not just like throw a dart at the Bible and see what it says to you today. But if you're at all trying to, and this really to me applies just as much like the most fundamentalist reader is the most kind of uh, assimilated reader, you recognize as you open this book, this is not just addressing me. This is not even addressing me at all at first. I've got to make a connection. Uh, and then you have just, you've got history in there. You've got uh, philosophy. I'm actually reading Leon Cass's philosophical uh, commentary in the book of Exodus right now called Building God's Nation, where he says, look, we can read this as believers, and to some extent he does as a Jewish believer, but we can also read it just as philosophers asking philosophical questions. And it, and it has all these big philosophical questions in it. Now, reading the Bible alone, or the kind of education you get at, say, a Bible college that really uses the Bible as almost its whole, whole curriculum, is not the same thing as what I think the liberal arts is at its best. But it is a, it has some really important analogies, and that's being kept alive in Christian colleges in a way that it's not, there's no an analogy to that in others. Now, at the same time, our colleges, in terms of the classical disciplines of liberal arts, like the things you teach and so many other people teach, those whole departments that are getting cut and programs that are getting cut and majors that are disappearing, that is happening everywhere. And it's, I mean, I think it's a testimony to the power of culture, right? Like, um, ultimately, um, just as the first Christians, the moment they kind of um, poked their heads even for one moment out of the catacombs, they had to start wrestling with Greek and Roman philosophical categories to try to articulate their doctrine of God. Like, they just had to answer the question, what is the essence and existence of God, or however you want to put it? And, and they were pressured into articulating their faith in a way that made sense in their cultural context, which happened to be highly philosophical, among other things. Well, we now live in a highly technological world. We live in a mammon-driven world like no other 
set of human beings in all of history. Mammon rules our world in a way that would have been inconceivable even in the, in the 19th century, um, let alone in the ninth century. Mm -hmm. And the pressures of mammon and its handmade technology, <laughs> uh, this would be my take on things, um, impinge on all institutions in extremely powerful ways. And they impinge on the customers of our higher ed institutions who are students and their families just trying to make their way in the world and figure out how to, what the next step is for them, often extremely feeling very constrained, very, uh, very afraid in a way of what the future holds. And there's a set of answers to how to make your way in this technological mammon-driven world that says, well, you might want to major in business, you might want to major in engineering, you might want to acquire a skill mm -hmm. that someone will pay you for. And when you frame it that way, it doesn't sound like uh, reading Flannery O'Connor is going to get you there. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, I hope that's not cutting no, too close good. to home. Yeah. <laughs> right? And, and at the same time, a bunch of other things happened in terms of how these institutions were funded and who wanted, who wanted and deserved access to these institutions in the eyes of the institutions themselves and the wider society. And all that has reshaped the pressures on, on the kind of colleges that you've taught at and that I care about and that the CCCU tries to serve. And that is kind of you know, it doesn't really matter whether you're a Christian or not, you are living in Mammon's empire today, just like the first Christians were living in Caesar's empire, and they had to figure out how to deal with it. So does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what I was, the reason I was comparing them and making them the same is, it seems like those majors, you know, the engineering major, yeah. the major, a lot of these important skills based training majors, right, yeah. are, they're surrendering to, I don't know how to put it, they're, um, <laughs> my COVID brain, <laughs> they can edit that out. Um, but I just, I just had COVID this last week. I'm still in quarantine. So I'm like still trying to like, my thoughts aren't working as fast as they normally do. Um, but they have to, they have to work with an accrediting body and that accrediting body yes. determines what is useful or not for their degree. And as those, yes. you know, the smaller colleges start making up more and more of the general college, you find that those liberal arts are getting squeezed out to make room for what ultimately matters for that degree. Does that make sense? Wow, totally. Yes. I think yeah. that's a very powerful pressure. Yeah. And the sort of ever-growing list of things that we want students to have been exposed to, if we're going to say you're qualified, you know, you have a bachelor's in, in engineering or, or whatever. Yeah, right. It's very, very tricky. That makes a lot of sense. And I hadn't, hadn't quite thought about that, that other layer yeah. of institutional pressure. Although I would also say that ultimately is also the technological society impinging on us with its with its idea that um that really what the world is full of is problems that have solutions and we need people who have the sort of expertise to solve the problems mm -hmm. <laughs> and i think that is like the most unliberal arts idea ever yes. um because you don't read literature to solve a problem so i i was very influenced thankfully very early in my life by um Dorothy Sayers book, The Mind of the Maker. And she has this one chapter, what she calls Problem Picture, which is about the triumph of the problem solution model in Western culture. And she points out there's just a lot of things in human experience that don't, they can't really properly be described as problems and they don't properly have solutions. And that's the domain of the artist, narrowly speaking, as the demand of the liberal arts, broadly speaking. And 
just more and more what we want are people who solve problems. Now that the irony is that all this is accelerating at the very moment that our cultural confidence in our collective ability to solve problems is getting lower and lower. So we're discovering just because you have a lot of experts and people with technical ability does not, like we know a lot about COVID, but we don't actually know how to persuade a reasonable number of people to get a vaccine or to wear a mask or to do any of the other things the experts think ought to be done because those aren't problems. Those are something other than problems. Yeah, we're treating we're treating people and their education like there's boxes to be checked. And, you know, the same accrediting bodies that work, not the exact same ones, but the idea of accreditation works across the board at universities. And so you apply the same, as you said, problem solution, you apply the same pressures of accreditation that you have for education or nursing or whatever to the humanities and you make them, you know, we're going to be equal across the board. Well, it turns out that the humanities can't actually check those same boxes for you, right? They don't have that ability to show, like you said, they don't fit in that paradigm of problem and solution. They don't fit in the paradigm of how to quantify what it is they're doing. And the more pressure they receive to quantify, and then they can't justify their existence based on this quantification system that shouldn't belong to them. And then we cut them. <laughs> so it seems like if we're going to save them, we have to kind of jump outside of what you're calling, you know, the problem solution paradigm or the accrediting uh, way of looking at it. And instead, we have to go back to, especially with in Christian higher ed, what what are they there for? Why was yes. it that as these Christian institutions we began not with what the market looked like or what the jobs were, but when we originally founded them, we said, okay to read the Bible, to know the Lord, to be able to read creation. These are the kinds of things we want students studying to be good Christians, right? Yeah, I think think a complete picture would also acknowledge that um, some of our institutions, uh, in fact, were founded with extremely pragmatic conceptions of what education was Mm -hmm. and uh, and often very well-intentioned such. so, and there is this pragmatic stream specifically in American evangelicalism that's always been susceptible to the idea that actually you don't need that book learning to yeah. uh, be a good Christian, even to read the Bible, like seminary, cemetery, all that stuff. Like that's very deep in the American Protestant tradition, especially it's more evangelical expressions. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the liberal arts were added as a, a kind of a status move. <laughs> and then once they no longer confer status and economic opportunity, they, they ebb away. So it's, it's a complicated inheritance and a somewhat institution dependent. Well, I, and I think that the accreditation thing is interesting because when you think about how the how that it, why does that have so much power ultimately really it's because of access to federal funds because federal funds are contingent in this kind of paragovernmental way on these uh, non-governmental but still government-like uh, accrediting bodies and it didn't used to be the case you know uh, families used to make their own judgments about where they would uh, spend their money on their child's further education and and when it, when you really go back to the founding of the republic it was who would you apprentice yourself to which lawyer would you study with which clergy member would you get further education with as an, essentially as an apprentice and you just you trusted that person that person's reputation um we probably need some kind of mediating institutions in a society as complex as ours and especially for families that don't have maybe the that, that haven't had the chance to develop the social capital to know who to trust but but channeling it all through government funding um, has turned out to be a very risky, has put our institutions, our 
Christian institutions at the kind of made them beholden to the technological logic that drives our government, drives the funding of education in this country, drives po policy on what matters in education in state universities and you know the big state institutions all are totally captive to a different kind of ideology now. Mm -hmm. And and we're kind of brought along for the ride. In right. That. Right. Okay. So now I have, I had the first follow-up that we never actually got to. Oh, yes, sorry. <laughs> now I have a second one that I, I, I wonder if, um, I wonder, I hope it's not a rabbit trail because I am personally very interested in how you would answer it. Um, okay. But the first one was, you said you saw a lot of hope in the Christian institutions. So their yeah. pressures aren't exactly the same, but they are succumbing in some ways to, to mammon and, and to that. But at the same time, you feel like there's a lot of hope in Christian higher ed to keep and hold on to the liberal arts. So why would you find that hope there? What is it that Christian higher ed can do or should be doing? Um, where is that hope found in those institutions? I think the deepest layer of it, I think there's a couple layers. One is it just the most fundamental is we believe the world holds together. But, you know, Christ is the one in him and through him and for whom all things are created in him, all things hold together. The, and, and therefore there's nothing to be known in the universe that doesn't have, um, you know, co uh, cosmic and Christian significance. Right. And, our neighbors no longer believe that. Uh, my wife's fellow faculty at Swarthmore, who are by and large excellent teachers and excellent scholars and, and great colleagues, they if they believe that, they can't justify it. They, they don't know how to articulate uh, why they believe that's true, if they still believe it, and many of them don't. And, uh, and certainly the technicians who kind of are setting the agenda for higher ed don't don't believe it or give it no thought. But Christians have to believe it, have to give it thought. And, and so I feel like, um, you know, the only, the only place in America that still believes there's a universe, a, 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 a cosmos that has a unity of truth, goodness, beauty to it, are places of biblical faith, uh, Jewish and Christian. And, and there's one, Zaituna, uh, that's a Muslim institution as well. Um, and so that would be the deepest thing. I think the, the slightly more secondary thing, as we've alluded to, is if you really want to read the Bible at all, seriously, the liberal arts come along for the ride because you are going to need history to put the scriptures in context. You are going to need linguistics, language, all the all the levels of the analysis of language mm -hmm. and literature. Mm -hmm. You're going to need philosophy because the Bible raises ultimate questions that can only be sort of rigorously attended to using tools of philosophy. You don't necessarily need to use all the categories or methods of Western philosophy, but clearly it's philosophy. So uh, and and the Bible is full of art. And uh, so the arts and the imaginative arts, the creative arts, the performing arts are there in scripture. And therefore, surely we're, I mean, if we're going to play all the instruments listed in Psalm 150 mm -hmm. or whatever instruments correspond in our own cultural context, somebody ought to get good at those, right? <laughs> and then they shouldn't just get technically good at those, but they should actually know why it is meaningful to be good at a musical instrument. Well, that's musicology, right? So I just feel like if you take the Bible seriously at all, mm -hmm. even if the Western liberal arts tradition somehow disappeared, and, and I hope this will happen over time, say in the African context where Christianity is replanting itself or mm -hmm. in the say South Asian context where Christianity has done the same or in China, I think ultimately you'd reinvent all these things to do justice to what it means to be biblical people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're just kind of preaching Augustine's ideas, right? Yeah. The doctrina, like you have to read all yeah. the 
different. And, and I'm completely on board with you. I even tell students, um, I would add that studying things they find to be useless is getting closer to studying God because God is useless. <laughs> so, yes. So, yes. <laughs> they can practice attending to useless things. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I've given some talks where I talk about art as the, the artistic dimension of any given thing. And I think all good human work has an artful uh, aspect to it, um, though not all human work is art per se, but it all should be artful if it's to be good work. And it is precisely that aspect of human activity that cannot be reduced to utility. It, the, the, the exact, I, I, I would argue, I'm, I'm Kant is in the background here and others, that, that the, the defining characteristic of art is unusefulness, which is not quite the same thing as useless. In fact, yeah. it's, it's essential for human life mm -hmm. to have this. But then where people get really nervous, as I say, and this is exactly what prayer is, right? Does prayer, is prayer utilitarian? Does prayer accomplish something in the world? Well, not in the usual sense of that word, or else God would just be a kind of a machine that we, you know, activate by our prayers. And instead, prayer is this encounter that we do believe has effects in the world, but you can't describe, you don't pray because it's useful. You certainly don't worship God because it's useful. So the liberal arts meet the practice of faith on the ground of no utility. But of course, oh, what, sorry? And on making. Completely, completely. Uh, and, uh, but let me, I feel like I'm not doing justice to the thing and to a very important part of the thing I don't say the other thing that's unuseful in the world is people people are not means to an end people are an end mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you're useful to me I still am meant to love reverence contemplate respect you you and the fact that you are in the world and if I don't have practice doing that mm -hmm. through my prayer and my worship and through the way I've disposed myself in my study and my intellectual formation what are the chances that when I encounter someone who doesn't seem very useful to me that I'm going to treat them with reverence and that I'm going to discover the gift that they are to me yeah. so there's a lot that hangs on whether we have a capacity for the unuseful a developed capacity for the unuseful um, in the formation of our lives well, and so let me ask a question that might be treading into some hot water here about that, because you were saying that people used to find somebody they would study under, and it was that relationship mm -hmm. that led them yeah. to do what it is they're doing. And I'm wondering how much more if we if we invested in faculty in a certain way that made them these kind of master teachers you want to apprentice yourself to, and those relationships became central how much our institutions would change because instead what they currently are is that faculty are just the another box that needs to be checked and we have you know we up the faculty efficiency ratio to cover as much students uh -huh. as we can or um uh -huh. we you know we move online which i think is what are we doing there I'm, I'm now an online teacher that's mostly where i teach i teach grad students online so what does that do to the liberal arts when we have transferred uh, that practice of being useless to one another or mm. not basing our relationships on usefulness into mm. a new paradigm in which all of our encounters are transactional, even in higher ed. Oh, man. <laughs> it's, it's just so damaging. It's so damaging. I mean, I, and I get how hard it is to come up with an economic model that works for this. I mean, that that is the reality, and I don't I don't begrudge any academic administrator who is trying to figure out how to just balance the books um, in a tuition dependent, uh, which really 
in many ways means US government grant dependent kind of economic environment. And in, I mean, just in, in, our, in our economy, this is hard, but um, I think we shouldn't fool ourselves and thinking that we're doing anything of very great importance if all we do is increase a, a certain kind of efficiency of output at the cost of personal formation. Mm -hmm. And Jesus also lived in a highly pressured world. It, it didn't have the same economic structures as our world by any means, but certainly Caesar never thought the way to get things done is to walk around Galilee for three years with a handful of men and women and tell them stories and do a few miracles. I mean, there, there were ways that Rome got things done at scale, right? And Rome was very good at getting things done at scale. And they had benefited from financial and industrial and knowledge revolutions very similar in, 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 a, in form, if not in content, to, to what has built our modern world. Um, and, and not just Jesus, but the way of the first Christians just was not to re-inscribe a Roman kind of formation on people. Um, and something happened in those first couple of centuries that was radically different and outlasted the empire and if we're serious about Christian higher education within our, our the economic world as we have it, mm -hmm. we've got to like thread that needle and find that path. And even with your Zoom teaching, I, I, I will say one thing that I've been very surprised about this past uh, year, which in many ways has been so, so difficult. When it's a small group, I actually have found, I've had some incredibly formative and transformative encounters with other persons through the medium that we're using right now. Mm -hmm. I, I'm more open to it than I was a year and a half ago, to be totally honest. Um, when it's a large group, I don't think, I don't think it has the same effect, but, but relationship is possible through some of these technologies and deep conversation is possible. Um, but, uh, but not if you're, not if what you're going for is efficiency. <laughs> yeah. And it does, I mean, it does change the dynamic because going from in-person settings in which I'd have students over and the mess of my children getting in the way while I'm hosting oh dinner with these yes. students and um, the humiliation usually that I experience <laughs> as trying to both be the professor they've seen in the classroom, but yes. the mom and the wife and the teacher and I'm a homemaker and just oh all that chaos I think is also really good it is good in a way that you can kind of you can censor and cut with zoom right and protect yes. that, that sphere yes. protect the lighting protect it you know there's yeah. still... no totally <laughs> well but so i think this gets to even a, a a deeper question which is what do we really think education is yeah and to what extent are we invested in a kind of professionalization of something that never was really meant to be that way. Now, I'm a, I certainly am not trying to imply that we should lower our standards somehow for, for example, um, I don't know, for who's qualified to teach. Like, mm -hmm. it's meaningful that you have read the books you've read, that you've written the works you've written, because that implies a kind of depth of engagement with a particular mm -hmm. domain that gives you authority, right? Mm -hmm. And And I'm not at all questioning that, but there's this other layer of professionalization that would divorce or separate the, that work that you've done in what we call your professional domain from your calling as a mother, wife, and homemaker. Why in the, when Mary sat at Jesus' feet and Mar Martha's there as well, well, that somebody has to prepare dinner and, and Jesus is surely not saying, you know, don't, 
don't ever prepare dinner. He's just saying, here's a, a moment of teaching, but it's not in school. They're not in school. Mm-hmm. They're in a home. Yeah. Like, so, uh, you know, I recognize we can't remake our institutions overnight mm-hmm. to, to completely uh, expunge the kind of um, the, the 200 year old kind of uh, trajectory of professionalization. But I think we might well consider ourselves to be living in conscious resistance to it with all of our big choices and, and be better off if we did. Yeah, well, I, I want to actually push a lot of bounds. I'm not saying that we like implode the system, but you know how well it's employing it's imploding just fine without our help right, so. right. <laughs> i mean that's the problem i think this has been the deal for me being within the academy you know i've been i've been teaching since what 2004 i don't even know how long that is so i've been teaching for a while within the academy and have been at various universities so i'm not just talking about one but the whole system of grades right in a liberal arts context makes almost no sense especially when you get into the humanities idea um you yeah. look at someone like simone Vey, who said if you are leading students to focus on their grades you're leading them away from the habits of attention that would lead them to a prayerful yeah. life and yeah. so yeah. we are trying to teach them to be contemplative but uh, trying to perform the acts of yes. contemplation so that I can breathe, <laughs> right? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense with what we're actually doing. And I think one of the wow. reasons that it has fallen apart is because we really have tried to impose upon, like you said, these studies wow. in a way that doesn't fit them. Now, I don't yes. know what that means. Does that mean that we return more to the K through 12 model? Do we do mm. more localized K through 16 liberal arts study or K through 14 yeah, liberal yeah, arts study. Yeah, yeah. And then we move into our professions. Um, what yeah. are the right models that yeah. move us forward where we really can get, like you said, the deep study of the things that matter and the things that form us right, right. before the specialization or maybe in conjunction with that doesn't fit what we're currently doing? I mean, what are, I guess what That's I'm asking so you is, or what are the innovative ways? Wow that we can buck the system or resist it and, and become something better, maybe. You know, this activates a, a sort of inchoate idea I've been nursing for a while, which is, I do wonder if we're not vastly underestimating the intellectual cap- capacity of say 12 to 18 year olds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, and, and I wonder if, um, it, it might, I'm, I'm very intrigued by the idea that, that maybe the place and time for liberal arts is not uh, after uh, whatever it is, 15, uh, 14 years of public school yeah. um, where you've been largely bored, but you did well in school. So someone says, well, you should go to college and you know, you were good at writing. So maybe you should major in English, <laughs> but maybe the, the, the moment, even when it might be more economically viable in certain respects, Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if only because uh, students of this age are still living at home rather than having to create this whole residential apparatus that mm-hmm. often we, we feel it goes along with college. Mm-hmm. What if we asked more of, you know, I, I get, I think I, I get the idea that, that young children, uh, you know, the grammar, logic, rhetoric kind of idea, mm-hmm. like they start out not ready for the, the ultimate questions that the liberal arts really care most about, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. But aren't they ready by 12 or 13? I mean, I, 
I had an English teacher in ninth grade who changed my life, um, Mrs. Nardiello. Mm -hmm. I went in a total technician. I loved programming computers. I was, I was good at computers. I was, this was in the very, very early days of computers. This was when Syracuse University, where my dad taught, had two computers. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would go to the university to work on the computer. Um, and I, if you would ask me going to ninth grade, what are you going to do with your life? I'd be like, oh, I'm going to be a computer programmer. Like, that's the coolest thing you could possibly do. Yeah. And and two things happened. One is I, we moved to a new school district that had higher expectations. I realized there were other kids, kids who were way better at kind of the underlying math and mm -hmm. algorithmic thinking than I was actually. But then I took ninth grade English with Mrs. Nardiello. And, um, you know, did I approach some of those texts? I mean, we, re we read classic texts, Shakespeare and a lot of poetry and so forth. Did I approach that with full, like, uh, Emotional maturity, certainly not. <laughs> um, intellectual maturity, not entirely, not in the way I read Euripides when I was 20, say in my classics degree. But was I seriously able to engage with the questions raised by King Lear or Romeo and Juliet or whatever? Yes, I was. And a lot of kids are, mm -hmm. and a lot more than we think are are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a it's an interesting thought experiment. What if we didn't? sort of conceded that maybe when you're 18, it's time to think about the shape of your calling and specialize. Mm -hmm. But what if we expected way more of when you're like eight to 18? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we taught, our, uh, I taught my kids Greek and Latin respectively, my son and my daughter, and had them reading those, you know, early stage, simple texts, mm -hmm. the kind you could read after a year or two of Greek and Latin. And, uh, and starting when they were seven and eight years old, and they were totally capable of doing it. Now I had, I had capable kids, not every kid would be interested in that, not every kid would have the patience, but a lot would. Mm -hmm. and, and yet we ask almost none to even try. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm really, I mean, I'm just trying to think outside the box more. You just said that, that you did Greek and Latin at home. Like I'm doing Latin at home. I'm doing Greek by myself right now. Just during oh, awesome. the summer yeah. for fun. Cause I've never studied Greek, but how yeah. much better is it to study things in that kind of situation? Like what if it was Sunday school and churches and we started encouraging yes. churches to study Latin and Greek and Hebrew. And that's yep. what your Sunday school was. Or um, or even if you were in the colleges, what if instead of pouring this money into what we call student life activities, right? They were great books. Yeah. And so you're studying to yes. be an engineer, but your yes. student life, the contemplating, the free oh, man. was like your poetry. Wow. Yes. So you don't have the grades in those. You just sit and enjoy poetry with your, I mean, I, I just feel yeah, like we're yeah. limiting ourselves by a yeah, yeah, yeah. model that is not yeah. really allowing for the freedom of those things to be enjoyed the way they need to be enjoyed. Wow, wow. Which gets back to the, the utilitarian, and I think it's why grades are dangerous. I have a, I've, I'll say I have a sort of ambivalent feeling about that because I what I don't want to lose is kind of a an expectation of excellence that mm -hmm. is actually rigorously assessed Yes. And I think it's really important. I mean, actually, speaking of Mrs. Nardiello, my ninth grade English teacher, she did something no teacher. I mean, this will perhaps sound weird uh, or odd for me to say, but no teacher before or since had ever done. She gave me a C minus on a paper. It's the lowest grade I've ever gotten on a paper. Mm -hmm. I didn't think it was such a bad paper. And I 
I I'm too I was too close to it at the time to really I don't know maybe it really was that bad. <laughs> what I know it was was a less of a paper than I was capable of writing, and I kind of phoned it in, and she mm -hmm. saw that. And however it may have compared to other papers other kids turned in, she realized what I needed at the right grade for that effort was C minus. Wow. And boy did that wake me up! Look, I'm I, honestly I'm. <laughs> Yeah. I, I remember seeing the grade in red in a circle on the last page yeah. and thinking, I failed to do what this teacher expects mm -hmm. I can do. Um, anyway, so great. I, I, I think about this all feelings. the time. I think about this all the time because we we run a school, right? So I've had to consider assessment quite a bit. And yeah, for yeah. the last yeah. four years, maybe, that I was teaching at John Brown University, I didn't give grades. And what I did, but I did qualitative assessment. So your yeah. paper was written all over. And the yeah. less it got written over yeah. as you turned in sub subsequent drafts, by the end where you saw very minimal remarks, you knew you had gotten somewhere. Yeah, I love it. By wow. the end of it, that's, which is actually more like real life. If real, you think about it. That's how it works for me as a real working writer. I mean, yes. my editor turns back my book exactly. <laughs> with a lot of comments and then fewer comments. Your, your, it's your. And that's the way that life looks. And so for me, it's yeah. not about rigorous standards of excellence. For right. you at that moment, right. you needed to see minus because you were imagining a paradigm in which you were being, your excellence was being ranked by an ABC system. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. if instead you got used to a system of a lot of red marks yeah, 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 yeah. and actually yeah. respond yes. or not, like you would get. Oh, I see. That's so good. Yeah. That's so so good. I, I guess I'm. I don't mean to just like throw all my ideas out there, but these are things. No, I love it. I think all the time. It's like, what do we do? And I think the way we're continually going cannot be the we the way we keep going. Or we're going to have like the fall of Rome and then we're going to have dark ages that we have to rebuild yeah. and move. I mean, Lewis yeah. would hate that I just used dark ages, but we would have a, a time of rebuilding. <laughs> it would happen So I guess the big question on the tables is how do we not have an implosion and a rebuild? What, yeah. what does it look like now for maybe the CCCU to work within this process to, <laughs> to do well by the liberal arts? Um, how can <laughs> we invest in that? How can we change imaginations about mm -hmm. what the liberal arts mean going forward mm -hmm. so that you know we can actually hold on to them the way they need to be held on to i love how yeah, honestly you're you're pressing me to think more imaginatively than i was maybe coming into this conversation thinking and and i think by the same token i i think all, there will be so much pressure on those of us who love the liberal arts to try to save what has been, mm -hmm. um, which may be a very unwise use of our energy <laughs> compared to forging some very new ways for these perennial practices, disciplines, and subjects, let's say, mm -hmm. to, to find their place. Um, maybe in part, partly because, you know, here's something that has been haunting me for quite a while because my wife does teach at one of these highly endowed, I mean, Swarthmore actually has the highest endowment per student of any institution, even more than Harvard University. Oh, wow. So, so just these are places of incredible wealth. Now to their credit, they're trying to extend that wealth to people who didn't grow up themselves with incredible wealth, but still there's just privilege hovering around all this stuff. And one of my fears has been, well, what's going to happen is 
the number of institutions that can hold on to the liberal arts the way they've been done is just going to shrink to a small privileged number. Mm -hmm. And a certain kind of student who has certain kinds of aptitudes and presents themselves at a given stage of life, namely high school with certain abilities, gets selected for those places. And I understand why that happens. I don't think it's all bad that that happens in that way per se. But, but man, that's a loss if, if, it gets, if it becomes this rarefied thing for people either of a certain amount of just privilege or a certain amount of innate ability that, that really they didn't ask for and, and you know, isn't their fault or their credit. Um, so I think the idea that, that organizations like the CCCU could foster tremendous on the edge innovation and creativity rather than shore up how we think it ought to be done is really, I think, at the heart of, of the matter. Um, and that and, way we don't offer something fake. I mean, that's what I'm worried about. Is mm. not not only will it just become this elite group that only gets the liberal arts the way they need to be, like the Swarthmore. Yeah. Even worse, we'll pretend we're offering liberal arts and we'll offer a fake version that nobody sees any yeah. value in for such a yes. long time that people will forget what they yes. asked for or why they met. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. So one other, I mean, just one thing to underscore is I, I think this is the great challenge for all of our institutions, basically. It comes down to persons. <laughs> there is a personal encounter, at least in my life, um, that, that is the only way that these disciplines are activated. And I've sometimes... Um, I've thought about this in terms of uh, online or mediated education. There, I think there's there's two things I learned in my 40s I, as my kind of midlife crisis activities. I learned, uh, going back to my computer programming youth, I learned the computer programming language uh, Ruby, which is just an object-oriented programming language. Um, and then I took up the cello and I studied the cello with a neighbor who's a very fine cellist and teacher of the cello. And uh, Ruby, I learned entirely online. Uh, I, I have never sat with another human being and had them teach me anything about Ruby. And I am a medium competent Ruby programmer. I don't know if I could get a job, but I could, I could, you know, I could get an interview, let's say, uh, as a Ruby programmer. I, I know what I'm doing and I can build stuff in it. Um, the cello was entirely personal. My teacher, I mean, my teacher would literally come and put his hand on my hand and move my hand until it was in the right configuration on the on the you know fretboard or whatever um fingerboard and there there's a spectrum of things that we can learn to be efficacious in the world and some of them you can learn totally online and some of them and i would argue any serious musical attainment has to be personal mm -hmm. there's just no way around that personal one-on-one -on -one encounter with a teacher um, everything in our world is pressing people towards the Ruby side of the equation. And there's a place for that. And I find great joy in programming still uh, avocationally. Um, but what we're going to have to figure out how to invest in is the things that happen in the encounter of persons. And I don't think there's anything in the liberal arts that doesn't depend on the encounter of persons. So how do we find ways to make that economic, mm -hmm. make it real, uh, as you said, uh, because I think the fake versions of these are 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 not very real, not very personal. Mm -hmm. How do we do that? That would be that would be the thing to work on, Jessica. Yeah. <laughs> so go work on yeah. that thing. <laughs> oh, yes, thank you. And I think that is a beautiful illustration for us to end on. And also, really, that puts the question out there. And like any yeah. good liberal arts 
inquiry. It begins with questions and continues with greater questions. And I think that yeah. that's the way it's supposed to be. That keeps us as humble as we move forward. So I really appreciate you ending with a question. So that was great. Well, thank you for spending this time. Talking. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. <laughs>